The apostles run away, but Mary stands at the foot of the cross. Why? Because she's a warrior, but a warrior of weakness. I'm Chloe Langer, and this is The Catholic Podcast. I'm joined here today by Joe Heschmeyer, who joins us for our Lenten series. It's Lent, and for our Lenten series, we're digging into the Passion through the lens and the vantage point of the characters of the Passion. So looking at the Passion through the eyes of Mary is where we're starting. Um, It's not an insignificant choice to start with Mary. Uh, You look at the great saints and Louis de Montfort and talking about the best way to reach Christ is through his mother. And so we figured what better way to start a Lenten podcast and a podcast series than to go to Christ through Mary. Chloe, what do we want people to take away listening to the podcast today? So the three major points that we want people to take away from this podcast are number one, Mary's whole life is tied to the passion, especially the death and resurrection of her son, Jesus Christ. Point number two, Mary stands fast while all the apostles run away because she's carried by faith and love rather than trusting in her own strength. And finally, point number three, all these things are a model for us. We need Mary in devotion in our own lives, and we need to imitate Mary in our love for Christ. Great, so let's begin. Part one, the passion and the joyful mysteries. We're discovering how Mary's life, her whole life, is centered around the passion. And so to dig into that deeper, let's look at the joyful mysteries, starting with the nativity and the gifts of the Magi. Hopefully, everyone listening knows that the the three magi or the wise men, whatever you want to call them, they come bearing gifts. Uh, They bear gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, the first two of these, to anyone familiar with the Old Testament, are unsurprising. Mm -hmm. If you go back to Isaiah 60, the first six verses talk about bringing gold and frankincense. And it's it's a prediction um, in a subtle way of a god king who will come into history. Mm -hmm. Because gold is what you give to a king. And frankincense is a gift to God. So specifically, frankincense is the good-smelling perfume, basically, that you pour over sacrifices that are offered to God. Mm-hmm. But wait, there's myrrh. <laughs> and this is this is the kind of shocking twist mm-hmm. when we, we're at the nativity. And so you get a gift for a, a god, you get a gift for a king, and then you get a gift for a mortal. So myrrh is basically an embalming fluid. It would be like bringing a tombstone to a baby shower. Like, it's a shockingly inappropriate gift right. <laughs> by any conventional standard. And it's not one that was prophesied in the Old Testament. So this is where you get kind of like a, a twist mm-hmm. that the Messiah coming into the world isn't just coming in to reign, but is also coming in to die. Mm-hmm. So yes, he's God. Yes, he's king. But he's also truly man. And because of that, he will die. So we have a little bit of this foreshadowing at the birth of Christ and when the wise men come to see him, but we're also continuing to see that when we go to the presentation in the temple. So can you talk a little bit about how that ties into the scripture and how that was foreshadowed? Yeah, so we, we just looked at the third joyful mystery, and we're going to look at the fourth one, the presentation. Mm-hmm. And here it's helpful to set the scene in case you don't remember what the presentation is all about. Mm-hmm. Uh, go to Luke 2, uh, in verses 22 to 24. We see that Joseph and Mary come bringing a purification offering. Now, this is the offering prescribed in Leviticus 12, uh, verse 2, for a woman who has received seed and given birth to a child. Mm -hmm. But we know, uh, because Luke just told us, that Mary conceived virginally. Right. So here's one of the ways, very subtly, that it 
preempts or foreshadows the passion. Because it shows that Mary is actually exempt from the law, mm-hmm. but submits herself to the law. Mm-hmm. Which is what we see Jesus doing throughout his life. Um, for example, the temple tax in Matthew 17. He's exempt from the actual tax, but submits to pay it anyway. And of course, we see it even more perfectly in his death on the cross. He is exempt from the wages of sin mm-hmm. as, as sinless, as perfectly God and perfectly man. And yet he submits to die for us. So this isn't just some crazy connection that you and I are coming up with. Yeah, surprise. Um, St. Bede the Venerable talks about this. He has a homily Mm -hmm. in which he says, uh, if you'll forgive a kind of a long quote, he says, Mary, God's blessed mother and a perpetual virgin, was along with the son she bore, most free from all subjection to the law. The law says that a woman who had received seed and given birth was to be judged unclean. And then after a long period, she, along with the offspring she had borne, were to be cleansed by victims offered to God. So it is evident that the law does not describe as unclean that woman who, without receiving man's seed, gave birth as a virgin. Nor does it teach that she had to be cleansed by saving sacrificial offerings. But as our Lord and Savior, who in his divinity was the one who gave the law, when he appeared as a human being, willed to be under the law, so too does his blessed mother, who by a singular privilege was above the law, Nevertheless, did not shun being made subject to the principles of the law for the sake of showing us an example of humility. End quote. So you can see that just as Christ is freely under the law, even though he could, you know, stand on his rights and say, hey, this shouldn't apply to me. Right. Having the humility to still endure that. We see the same thing happening. Mary would have known going into the temple. I don't actually have to pay this sacrifice. I'm not actually ritually impure. Mm-hmm. Uh, because this is a virginally conceived child. And so, you know, sometimes you'll hear people bring up this presentation in the temple and the purification of Mary as evidence of her having sinned because they, they confuse ritual impurity with sin. Right. But they also confuse uh, Leviticus 12 with being something that Mary's actually bound by rather than freely submitting to. Mm-hmm. So that's that's just the first way the presentation uh, foreshadows the passion. The second way, let's talk about, uh, in verse 33, uh, Simeon's prophecy. Right. So Luke 2, 33 says, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and will be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So Simeon is warning Mary Mm -hmm. that this child, this little infant who's come into the temple, Something is going to happen to him where it will be, you know, a stumbling stone for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. People are going to fall. The thoughts of many will be made bare. And then he says, and this just seems like terrifying words to hear as a new mother, that a sword will pierce her soul also. And all of this, in a pretty obvious way, Mm -hmm. is going to be pointing to Good Friday. So that's the presentation. The next mystery would be the finding in the temple. Yeah, so this is just a little bit after this, also in Luke 2. Uh, if you want to look at the Bible verses for it, it's Luke 2, 41 to 52. Uh, very briefly, the finding in the temple, you've got the Holy Family going up for Passover to Jerusalem. And then they think that Jesus is with, you know, other parts of the, the big caravan of people who've come up. Mm-hmm. But in fact, they've left him in Jerusalem and they return. And so they find him on the third day in the temple teaching the teachers of the law. And they're amazed at, at his wisdom and knowledge. Now, 
one thing that should immediately jump out to us is this is literally the only story we have from the 30-year stretch between the presentation of Christ and his public ministry. So Luke found this particular event so important that out of three decades of the life of Jesus Christ, this was the only thing he or anyone else thought we needed to know. Well, look at the elements. It's in Jerusalem. It's on Passover. And there's three days in which Jesus is separated from his mother and then returns. Great. A lot of connections. A lot of connections (laughs) to Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday. Mm -hmm. And so you have to imagine, like, as terrifying as this would have originally been for Mary the Mm -hmm. first time they go through it, it must have been an incredible comfort on Good Friday and on Holy Saturday when amidst all of the pain and confusion of Holy Week, she can say, okay, but once before this happened, mm-hmm. once before I was separated from my son in Jerusalem on Good Friday, and on the third day we were reunited. Came back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so this, I think, helps to explain a certain, we'll call it a mystery of Easter morning, which was, where was Mary? You know, we hear about Mary Magdalene and these other women going to the tomb mm-hmm. with spices to anoint what they think is going to be a dead body. Mary isn't there to anoint a dead body. Yeah. And it seems like there are really only two options. Either she cares less about her son than these other women care about him, which is unthinkable. Right. Or she's not expecting a dead body on Easter morning. Part two, the wedding at Cana. So we've just spent time looking at the joyful mysteries and we're now turning to the luminous mysteries. Uh, To set the scene, we're going to be looking at Jesus's first sign um, during his time at Galilee. So we'll be reading from John chapter two. On the third day, there was a marriage at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the marriage with his disciples. When the wine failed, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, O woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So, Joe, can you talk to us a little bit about why the hour of this verse is significant? Yeah, so we find this throughout the Gospel of John, where his hour is a reference to the Passion. Mm -hmm. Um, to give you a few examples, in John 7, it says, So they sought to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him, because his hour had not yet come. And in the next chapter, it says, These words he, Jesus, mm-hmm. spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him, because his hour had not yet come. And then we see it arriving on Holy Thursday. So in John 12, he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And in John 13, it says that before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So it's in that last verse Mm -hmm. that John really spells out what is meant by the hour of Jesus. It's the hour of departure. It's the hour of the Mm passions. You know, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, into Easter Sunday. That whole arc that we call Triduum. Right. And the other synoptic gospels, or the other gospels, the synoptics, also use this phrase. Um, so in Mark 14, in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says that going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. That's Mark 14, mm-hmm. verse 35. And then uh, in Mark 14, 41 which we also find a parallel in Matthew 26. It says, um, 
Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so from the very beginning, we see the Virgin Mary present at the beginning of Jesus's public ministry, a public ministry that already has this foreshadowing that will inevitably lead to the cross. And so Mary is there next to Christ, just as she's going to be next to Christ on Calvary. She's next to Christ at Cana. And so when he says, my hour has not yet come, we should understand there to be something of an invitation there. It would be a mistake to view this as a rebuke, as if he's saying like, no, I'm not going to do that miracle. It's not time yet. Right. But rather there's more of an invitation there because loaded in this is if he does this miracle, he's going to become a very public person Mm -hmm. very quickly. And there's only one way that story ends up and it's the cross. And so he seems to almost be giving Mary an out. He seems to almost be saying, if you want to wait a little longer. Yeah, here's some time. But she says, instead, do whatever he tells you. Uh, She doesn't take my hour has not yet come as a no, as a rebuke. Mm -hmm. She just turns in faith and just trusts that whatever is going to happen, Jesus is in control. Part three, Mary as the new Eve. We're going to begin this section with a quote from Fulton Sheen. Quote, Eden was now being reversed. Three things cooperated in our fall. A disobedient man, Adam, and a proud woman, Eve, and a tree. God takes the three elements that led to the defeat of man, and he uses them as an instrument of victory. The obedient new Adam, Christ, the humble new Eve, Mary, and the tree of the cross. So in this section, we'll be digging into why Christ refers to his mother as woman in John chapter 2, verse 4. And to understand that, we have to look at Mary as a new Eve. So let's look at a comparison between the book of Genesis and the gospel of John. And on one hand, we have Adam and Eve, and on the other, we have Jesus and Mary. The comparison is suggested by John 1, since he very intentionally begins his gospel with the words, in the beginning. And if that phrase sounds familiar, it is. We've heard it in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and that begins the exact same way. But there's a more subtle parallel that you notice when you dig deeper into scripture. Midway through John chapter 1, John turns from the creation of the world to a week in the life of Jesus and John the Baptist. And that starts with John the Baptist proclaiming the coming of Christ. And then John says, the next day, He saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's John chapter 1, verse 29. Then, a few verses later, the same thing happens again. The next day, while he's with two of his disciples, they leave and follow Christ. Then, in John chapter 1, verse 43, he says, The next day, and talks about how Jesus decided to go to Galilee. For a gospel that begins with a very blatant nod towards Genesis 1, it's amazing how John sort of sneaks in those references to the days of creation. Christ, in the gospel of John, is slowly recreating the world because he's the word made flesh. But that leads us into the wedding at Cana, which we just spoke about. So tell me about the parallels there. So this is still part of the new week of creation. John 2, 1 begins by saying, On the third day... There was a marriage at Cana in Galilee. And this is significant for two reasons. So first of those, the third day 
is a nod throughout the Old and the New Testament to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's kind of like a foreshadowing of the Triduum, which you explained earlier. So, for example, when Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah, an event which foreshadows Christ laying down his life, it's no surprise that in Genesis we read that this happened on the third day. But there's another reason that that timing is significant. If you keep up with the timeline of John 1, that means we're now to day six of creation. And what happened on the sixth day? Well, in the sixth day of Genesis 1, you've got the creation of man and woman. So here you've got man and woman revisited. Mm -hmm. And it's here the church sees Christ raising marriage to the level of a sacrament. He takes what is good and makes it better. He turns water into wine. And this also explains the decision why Jesus calls Mary woman. Woman is the same name for Eve in the garden. And so we go back to Genesis 2 and you'll find that it says in Genesis chapter 2, 23, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Yeah, that's the thing I think a lot of people don't realize mm -hmm. is that Eve's original name wasn't Eve. Mm -hmm. It was woman. So, Chloe, when does she go from being called woman to being called Eve? So we see this transition in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Yeah, so I think that's weird timing. I mean, yeah. there, it's in the middle of the fall. Mm -hmm. The curses have just been placed on Adam and Eve and the serpent. Then he changes his wife's name to mother, mm -hmm. which is weird, especially because she doesn't have any kids at the time. Right, it's just the two of them. Yeah, uh, and so he renames her right there where the fall happens. Mm -hmm. And then they're given clothes and they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Right. But why would this be significant when reading John's gospel, especially? So the weird timing aspect parallels really well with John's gospel. So in John 19, 26 through 27, we see when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near her, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. So again, weird timing and even more so because John's biological mother is standing right there. Yeah, we know that from Matthew 27, mm -hmm. uh, verses 55 to 56, mm -hmm. that John is there with his mom and Jesus says, behold your mother to his biological mother, the yeah. Virgin Mary. And so we see the same kind of woman to mother transition mm -hmm. that right where you have the tree of the cross remedying the tree in Eden, mm -hmm. you've got the same woman to mother uh, transition happening. So just to recap some of these parallels we've seen so far. Mm -hmm. You've got in the beginning in Genesis, you've got in the beginning in John. You've got the six days of creation in Genesis, you've got the six days of creation in John 1 to 2, mm -hmm. culminating in the wedding feast of Cana. Right. You've got Christ as a new Adam, and we get this explicitly in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Mm -hmm. And you've got Mary as the new woman or the new Eve, and we get that pretty explicitly at the wedding feast of Cana. And you even have a parallel of sorts uh, between Eve coming from the rib of Adam and Jesus taking his flesh entirely from Mary. I mean, if you think about it, this is the only two instances in history in which one individual's human flesh is taken entirely from another single human being mm -hmm. and not from two biological parents. But we can think of even more examples than this, or we can point out even more examples. These are pretty well known even in the early church. You've got in Genesis 3, the woman being tempted by a fallen angel, mm -hmm. the, the serpent. And then you've got the Virgin Mary in Luke 1 being greeted by an angel, Gabriel. You've got even a parallel on gardens. You've got the Garden of Eden. And then the remedy to Eden 
happens in the Garden of Gethsemane, leading to the cross. And leading specifically to what St. Paul calls the tree of the cross mm-hmm. in Galatians 3, which, it of course, calls to mind the tree of knowledge of good and evil, where the fall originally happens. And why does the fall happen? Because there's a sinful fruit of the tree. And so in this new, this kind of new Adam and new Eve with Jesus and Mary, Jesus is described in Luke 1 as the fruit of Mary's womb. So you have the sinful fruit in Genesis remedied by the sinless fruit in Luke and in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also, if you want to step outside of the Gospel of John and look more broadly, there's a war between the serpent and the woman. In Genesis 3, uh, verse 15, this is one of the curses placed, Mm -hmm. is that there will be this strife between the devil, the serpent, and the woman. In Revelation 12, we see the same thing. We see the dragon, who is pretty explicitly compared in the latter half of the chapter to the serpent in the garden, at war with a woman who is clothed with the sun, who gives birth to Jesus Christ. And then, you know, the final note, the reason that the woman, Eve, is renamed to Eve is because it means mother of the living. And we're told that in Genesis 3.20. And so you've got that renaming of woman to mother, but all of that culminates in the fact that Mary is the mother of the living in Christ, that she's the mother of the true Christians, those who hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. And you get that pretty explicitly in Revelation 12, verse 17. Part four, the virgin womb and the virgin tomb. So when we're looking through the documents written by the church fathers, we see them focusing a lot on Mary's virginity. And I think something that you could like falsely take away from that is like, yeah, that's because sex is bad. That's because sex is dirty. And that's not the case at all. But why, why the focus? Yeah. So I think if we're going to understand why they're obsessed with Eve and Mary, Mm being virgins and Eve remaining perpetually, I mean, sorry, Mary remaining perpetually a virgin. Mm -hmm. You have to actually take a step past Good Friday to like Good Friday evening, like as we're getting into Holy Saturday, into the burial of Christ. Um, So I want to look at two different passages that have like a curious detail. The first one is Matthew 27. This is verses 59 to 61. Talking about Joseph of Arimathea Mm -hmm. taking the body of Christ. After he's died on the cross. And it says, Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the tomb and departed. Okay, so notice that he specifies that it's a new tomb. Right. It might just be like a random detail, but you see John doing the same thing in John 19, 41. He's even more explicit about it. When this is a new tomb and it's explicit in terms of like biblical history, was it normal to lay people in old tombs? Uh, Frequently you would lay someone in the tomb and then after their body had decayed to just being bones, Uh you'd put them in what's called an ossuary. Like you just put the bones in a smaller container and bury that. And so it was not unusual to lay someone in a resting place until their body decayed. And then dig them up and rebury them in a smaller spot. Okay, so that has even more significance because it would have been easy to just be like, oh, you know, here's someone who's already been put into a smaller container. We'll just put another one in there. Yeah, reusing a tomb was was normal. And here we're talking about a tomb that's not far from a spot where crucifixions happen. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. would have been easy to reuse a tomb here. Right. And yet we have two of the four evangelists specifying that that didn't happen. So John 19, verse 41. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. Well, we just mentioned the importance of gardens. Right. And in the garden, a new tomb where no one had ever been laid. So he doesn't just specify that it's a new tomb. Mm-hmm. He then specifies where no one had ever been laid. Okay, so why? Right. right. Like, 
what is this obsession with no one else getting to have laid in the tomb mm-hmm. that Christ is laid in? It's all about holiness. But we need to understand what we mean by holiness. So hagios, it means to be set apart by or for God, to be holy, to be sacred. That's the Greek word mm-hmm. for holy. And so both the Jewish and the Greek understanding of holiness is that a holy thing is a thing that belongs to God. And so it doesn't mean that ordinary things are evil. It means they're profane. Profane is what it means to be not holy. Mm-hmm. It means to be like common, ordinary. Yeah. And it has a bad rap. You know, we hear words like profanity. Right. But there's this idea that the things of God should just be things of God. And the Jews had this very, very strongly. Mm-hmm. There was an entire ki- like kind of script that they would use in writing that was only used for writing scripture. Huh. That's how much they separated things out just for God. And so you have, you know, if you go through the Old Testament, there's all this stuff about not mixing impurities and all of mm-hmm. this. You know, don't even mix linens of different types. Right. The whole point of that law was to stress the need for purity as a form of, like, holiness. Like, a thing is either, you know, a chalice used for the mass, or it's a cup that you drink wine out of, but it's not both. Right. You don't just use, like, the Dixie cup, or you don't use, like, the, <laughs> yeah. the Tupperware for the mass. Mm-hmm. And, like, intuitively, hopefully, we recognize this. That mm-hmm. We should have things set apart just for God. Mm-hmm. And so it's cool that Joseph of Arimathea, who is a Jew who understands all these things? He's a Pharisee. And the Pharisees, for their many flaws, <laughs> got the idea of having things that were ritually pure, that were dedicated just to God. Mm-hmm. And Joseph gets this, and he does it in a good way. And so Matthew and John include this detail uh, approving, you know. But this is also the way the Old Testament speaks um, of, this is, I would say, a very Marian image. So let's look at Ezekiel 44. It's one of the ways we have something set apart just for God. So the last eight chapters of Ezekiel are all prophecies of the temple that is to come. Okay. And in Ezekiel 44, it says, Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east, and it was shut. And he said to me, This gate shall remain shut. It shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Therefore, it shall remain shut. Only the prince may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gate and shall go out by the same way. Now, on a very literal level, so I just got back from the Holy Land. I saw the eastern gate of the temple wall. Um, And this is, you know, Christ actually comes through the eastern gate and now it is blocked off. Um, And so there's a a literal physical sense which that happens. But the church fathers recognized it as being not just about a physical temple. Because in John 2, who or what is the temple? The temple is the body of Christ. Right. And so the temple gate around the body of Christ is the Virgin Mary. Because Mm -hmm. she's the one who protects that temple during the nine months of pregnancy. Yeah, yeah. And it's through the east gate of the, you know, the temple gate Mm -hmm. uh, that the Lord comes into the world. Mm -hmm. And so they saw in this a reference to the perpetual virginity of Mary. So, for example, St. Gregory the Wonder Worker, Mm -hmm. writing in the 3rd century, he says, The Holy Virgin is herself both an honorable temple of God and a shrine made pure, and a golden altar of whole burnt offering. By reason of her surpassing purity, she is the divine incense of oblation and oil of the Holy Grace, and a precious vase bearing in itself the true nard. 
And the priestly died in revealing the good pleasure of God, whom she alone approaches but holy in body and soul. She is the door which looks eastward, and by the comings in and going forth, the whole earth is illuminated. End quote. So if you think about it this way, the Jewish people and the earliest Christians had a deep understanding that the things of God belong just to God. So if Christ is laid in this tomb, nobody else gets laid in the tomb before or after him. Mm-hmm. And to this day, you can go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and you can go and venerate the actual tomb where he was buried and where he rose again because they honored it from very early on in Christianity. Yeah. And they recognize this is special and we don't just like put another body in here. Mm-hmm. This is where Christ died and rose again. So think about that when it comes to Mary's womb. No one else gets to be in the place where the incarnation happened. Like this is where God becomes man. Uh, so here I want to use another cool thing from the Holy Land. Um, in the Church of the Annunciation in Nazareth, there's a cave in which the angel Gabriel is believed to have uh, visited Mary. And now it's part of a church. And in the cave, in the church, there's an extremely tiny tabernacle. Oh, it's because Jesus was little there. Yeah, exactly. That's so cool. Because God becomes not just man. God becomes a zygote. Right. An embryo, a fetus, a baby, a toddler. And, you know, it's it's that recognition of the smallness of the incarnation. And it's there. That spot is so sacred. Like, the womb of Mary is the door between heaven and earth. Right. And so it's set apart. Mary, in her whole person, is set apart. So Mary's a virgin because she's the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, go back again. You know, we mentioned the Ark earlier. Mm-hmm. In Second Samuel 6, Uzzah, when they're going through the hill country of Judah, yep. he accidentally touches the Ark and is struck dead because the Ark is so holy that it can't be profaned by human hands. Mm-hmm. Now, Mary... Is the new Ark of the right. Covenant. And we're supposed to expect that Joseph felt comfortable just having children with her. Uh, that a, a man who knows the story of Uzzah is just right. like, yeah, yeah no, no problem. I'm going to engage in marital relations with the new Ark. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it doesn't happen. Right. And here, you know, I guess it's, it's worth mentioning um, the numinous fear. Mm-hmm. So C.S. Lewis talks about this. That if you were told that there was a tiger in the next room... Uh-huh. Uh, you'd be afraid. But if you were told there was a ghost in the next room, you'd have a very different kind of fear. Yeah. And if it was a good ghost, you wouldn't be worried about it doing something evil to you, but mm-hmm. there would still be something of fear. Right. And that, he says, is close to what we mean by the numinous. Okay. It's like a holy awe kind of fear. Mm-hmm. And we see it throughout Scripture. So throughout the New Testament, when we see an angel appear, what do they say? Don't be afraid. Mm-hmm. Yep. And what does Jesus say when uh, in Luke 5... There's a great catch of fish. And Jesus says, depart from me. From a, or I'm sorry, Peter says, depart from me from a sinful man. Uh-huh. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. Right. And at the transfiguration, at the resurrection of Christ, we find these kind of appearances of Christ in glory mm-hmm. where he has to comfort people and say not to be afraid. Right, right. Well, there's one interesting half exception to this. When the angel, probably Gabriel, mm-hmm. appears to Joseph in the dream, he says, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Okay. So Joseph seems to have had a kind of numinous fear mm-hmm. of his own wife. Yeah. And yeah. in that sense, you can understand why, why, of course, Mary was perpetually a virgin. Yeah. Because Joseph got what so many of us don't get today, mm-hmm. that Mary is consecrated to Christ. 
And so it's, it's all of that. So Mary, in her own body, prefigures the empty tomb. And so the beginning and ending of the earthly life of Christ before the resurrection, you have this fascinating parallel between the womb of Mary and the tomb. And if you think about it, with the resurrection, the tomb is sort of a, a womb of eternal life. Right. Because Christ rises again from that. Right. He has, as it were, two entries into the world. Part five, Mary at the cross. So the apostles fled. Why did Mary stand at Good Friday? So this is a really good preview of what this whole Lenten series has in mind. So the apostles fled because they rely on their own strength. So all of the apostles flee, and we see this in Mark 14, verse 50. But one of them manages to make it to Good Friday, and that's John. And why? Because he's the disciple whom Jesus loves. And he's also the youngest, which probably isn't a coincidence. So he's the least likely to trust in his own strength. But looking at the other apostles, we see Peter. So he relies on his own strength. You know, he won't, de- he won't deny Christ, but he does. And he does three times. So afterward, he's learned his lesson. He can't rely on his own strength. So he falls into the mercy of Christ. Judas relies on his own strength. And he tries to make things right. He goes and gives back the money that the- he was given for betraying Christ. And he fails. And he ends up falling into despair and killing himself. The women of Holy Week are really the best at relying on the mercy of God and upon their love of God, upon faith, upon grace, rather than just upon their own strength. So they stand while the men flee. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9-10, through 10, Christ says to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul replies, I will all the more gladly boast in my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And this is something that nobody knows as well as the Virgin Mary. So there's a line in Luke 11, 27 to 28, that initially appears kind of anti-Mary. Mm-hmm. So it says, As Jesus said this, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts that you sucked. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Okay, so again, we have to get past our surface read of it. Because mm-hmm. is Jesus denying that Mary is blessed? Of course not. Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, has proclaimed Mary back in Luke one forty-two, where she said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is Mary blessed? So this is Elizabeth's third blessing. The first is that she said, Blessed are you among women of Mary. The second, she said, Blessed is the fruit of your womb. But the third is another blessing of Mary. She says in Luke 1, 45, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And that's a good way of understanding the Virgin Mary. Mm -hmm. She who believed. This is what you might call Mary's confident littleness. In the Magnificat, Mary's great uh, proclamation of praise in Luke 1, beginning with Luke 1, 46, She says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And one in the same breath, she both refers to herself as a handmaiden, even slave in the Greek, Mm -hmm. of God, and talks about her littleness. But then also says all generations will call her blessed. So 
Frank Sheed in the book To Know Christ Jesus uh-huh. points out this apparent paradox, and he connects it with something that Jesus says. In Matthew 11, 29 to 30, when Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the Christian life isn't about just getting by on our own strength and bigness and everything else. We are very small. And the more we allow ourselves to be small, the more God can be big. I think this is like beautifully seen in the lives of the saints too. Like you think about St. Therese of Lisieux. She's known for her little way, her smallness. You know, all these, you know, these great saints that I look to up are just mountains. And I'm such a, I'm a grain of sand and that's who I am. And yet we see her as this beautiful vision of what it means to be small and good. Yeah, Therese is characterized by two things. Mm -hmm. Um, A very conscious littleness Mm -hmm. and an incredible confidence that God will take care of her. She doesn't rely on her own strength. She's like a small child who knows that if she cries long enough, a parent will come along and take care of her. her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So she compares the spiritual life to being picked up by the father. Or like being a child at the foot of the stairs, trying to like take take even one step up the stairs, not being able to. Until finally, like, dad has mercy and yep. comes down and picks you up. And this is what she calls the elevator mm-hmm. in the spiritual life. Rather than yep. trying to climb up by your own strength. But this is something that all of us, I think, uh, really, we struggle with. Uh, I mean, few of us kind of even come close to emulating Mary and allowing herself to be small. Yep. Allowing herself to be picked up by Christ. But that's the key. Like, Mary is so powerful at the foot of the cross yep. because she's so comfortable being weak. Yeah. So what can we take away from this? How can we be more like the Virgin Mary? So I think the first takeaway is stop trusting so much in yourself. Like, it's easy to think, you know, I have this all together. This Lent is going to be the Lent. I'm going to put this on myself. I'm going to give up all these things. This is going to be great. And the reality is that based on how Mary lives out, Holy Week, we just need to trust in God and start by the trust aspect of it. The second, trusting that God will fulfill his promises in your life, even when you don't know how. And I think the third, and for me, one of the most important ones is trusting that God can redeem what was broken. So in Genesis, we see Eve, she makes mistakes. She's a squishy human being and she falls And it looks like, you know, that's the end. That's it. We've ruined it. But through Mary, we see God come in and redeem everything that was broken. Everything that we thought was just gone or lost or ruined by ourselves. And he's able to redeem it. So if you're struggling or if you're wanting to heal through something through Lent, taking confidence in the fact that what's once was broken can again be healed. Yeah, taking comfort that Eve and Mary... And Adam, for that matter. I mean, they're, they're very weak. Mm-hmm. What Adam and Eve do is try to forget their weakness, try to claim godlikeness mm-hmm. on their own authority and mm-hmm. by their own strength, and it, it turns out disastrously. But having the patience to wait and the lowliness to wait um, with Mary mm-hmm. to just say, okay, I'm very small, but the Messiah is very big and he'll right. take care of things. So... As a recap, we spent this week's podcast episode looking at the cross through the eyes of Mary. And next week, we'll come back with another character of the passion and view the passion through their vantage point. So thanks, Joe, for your time. My pleasure. Let's close with a prayer. All right. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen.
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.